podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to 99.94, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at 9994DM or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and 99.94, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. All right, let's get this party started. Uh, let's start with Patreon questions. Christopher says, what is the ceiling for US cricket and how big can Major League get? I mean, if you compare it to football, then we know it probably does have a ceiling. Will American, I mean, being that Americans have the best ice hockey competition, the best basketball competition, the best baseball competition, the best, I don't know, American football, whatever they call it, competition, are they ever going to accept a cricket competition that isn't the best? And they're probably never going to have a competition better than um, the IPL. So there is a ceiling, obviously. I think we've already seen that with football. Um, uh, How quickly it gets to that, at what level, um, uh, it can sustain it consistently. Also, it's you know they're used to very long seasons. Is there a chance for this ever to be a long season because of the IPL? All those sorts of things, I think, are fair. Um, but there's absolutely no reason why they can't you know be the top ten nations in the world. There's no reason why they can't regularly be producing cricketers outside of uh, in 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 the IPL um, uh, and in other major leagues you know, um, around the world. Also. Um, yeah, I don't see any reason why they can't do that. Even just look at their minor league um, cricket standard. You know, it, you you add money to the, the sort of structure of America and the way the sport works in America. You can see why this could work. But I kind of see Major League Cricket as a potential second biggest league in the world. Now, that might be 20, 30, 40 years. And I don't know. But also just because it is uh, completely aimed at a market that does pay, there's none, they, they don't have to worry about the, um, uh, the normal parts of cricket. The, uh, oh, this person likes this format. This, they probably just build a new audience. Um, and pretty sure that they've in, they haven't even started their first tournament and they've already got more money invested into them than the CPL has in their history. Which is, when people invest in America, they invest, right? So, no, I, I think on that, you know, all those different things, um, um, there, there's absolutely no doubt that um, there, there's huge uh, possibilities there, but we still have to see it. We know there are a lot of cricket fans in America, but are there enough cricket fans in each individual part? And my career and Crick Info, um, you know, probably some of the other, you know, some of the, you know, the podcasters, maybe the YouTubers, we all know what a big market America is, but is there enough individual markets to start with to, you know, sort of create that hype? And I think so far we'd have to say no, right? And that's the, that's the big thing. Can you get Americans to go down and watch a great game when they're 
auntie isn't Jamaican and, you know, they haven't flown over from Bangladesh or India or they're not a student from New Zealand or something like that. Can you get just a normal American cricket fan to go to the cricket? We know that Morrisville, it has worked. It's a very small place and a very, you know, uh, uh, very tiny. But, yeah, that's that's the big thing. But, yeah, potentially. I don't see any reason why it can't be the second biggest um, T20 uh, league. Whether that means that the American cricket team is great or not, I also don't know. I don't know how those two things directly play into each other. James said, did Sachin Tendulkar have any weaknesses as a batter? Technical, physical, mental. Uh, first saw him in 91, 92, a tour of Australia. I don't remember ever seeing any. I think he had one where if you could bring the ball consistently from outside off stump at pace back in. Um, I can't remember if it was, I think it was the South Africans who had that. Um, they, I think they were the ones who had more success with him over a certain period of time, maybe because they had a couple of bowlers who could do that. Um, I'd have to, I mean, because we don't have that great data I, I, and I am probably talking more sort of peak, his peak period. Um, it'd be great to have a look and see if that is, um, yeah, I'm not even sure if we could, you know, fully have a look at that. But I remember that was the one back in the day because I remember the Australian team tried a similar thing and couldn't quite get it to work, but I think it was different kind of bowlers. Um, so, and, and I think with the Australian team, they're probably their quickest bowlers weren't moving the ball back in to the batter. Um, so there was certainly, uh, I, th I think that certainly played a part. Um, but yeah, no, on a basic level, um, I wouldn't have thought he had any obvious flaws. Uh, certainly not any major flaws. In the same way that Steve Smith has a flaw um, at, with the ball going away from him with, with a left arm finger spinner, but he's still averaging forty or forty five. Like that's the sort of flaw that Tendulkar would have had an average where he only averaged shy of fifty, um, rather than anything else. Um, but he would have had bits that he was absolutely strong about. I mean, all the best players have that. So we just probably I don't know if we have enough data on peak Tendulkar. We probably have data on him later on in his career, um, and that's you know by then he wasn't the same player anyway. James says, "What's the difference between a good technique and effective technique? Generally, a good technique is one that looks pretty, James." Uh, I mean, the sort of nonsense that is spoken about techniques in cricket is hilarious. You often hear players like Crawley and Vince um, have good techniques. Well, that answered the question um, a little bit earlier there, didn't they? But they fail to get across and drive away from the body outside of stump and frequently get out doing so. Uh, is that what we call a good technique? No, so I don't think there's anything wrong with James Vince's technique um, when it comes to driving. The problem with James Vince is that he has no other shots. Maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, isn't it? The problem with James Vince is that he is always, he's going to cover drive all the time to balls that aren't quite full, which means that there's a huge advantage, a huge chance of him getting an edge. Also, he doesn't push any of those drives, right? They're mostly full um, shots. And then the other thing with James Vince specifically is he doesn't really score singles, right? So he either hits a boundary um, or he doesn't score at all. That means that you can bowl in for ages on end and you can play with his patience. We know that for all of his talents, patience isn't probably one of them. And he's going to continue to drive on the up. And eventually, doesn't. you could be the best cover driver in the world, you're eventually going to edge, right? And because he's not punishing you in any other way, you can kind of stack the offside a little bit. You can stack the slips cordon. You can hold the ball out wide and you can do that. Technically, I don't think there's a big problem uh, with with him. Crawley's a little bit different. Crawley has a technical flaw with his hand. But I think if you look at Crawley in general, he's a technically 
correct player. His problem is that I don't think he can really play top level spin. Uh, and uh, he has this this problem with his hand um, that comes around a little bit. So that is a technical flaw, but it's not it's not that he has a a bad technique in total. The reason that both of these are seen as people with good techniques or aesthetically pleasing techniques is because they can drive on the up. And we don't talk about that enough, but they are quite tall players, you know, uh, probably more so in Crawley's case. I think Crawley must, must have uh, Vince by a couple of inches, but Vince has got quite good posture at the crease, if you will, and they stay on top of the ball. That's a lot of what we're talking about. That means that they can drive balls that other players can't. In test cricket specifically, when the pitches are a little bit better than first-class pitches, that's a huge skill to be able to have. Um, and so, yeah, there is, a, there is a huge conflation between good techniques and effective techniques. One of my favorite ones ever was Greg Blewett, who played for Australia, who, I don't know, must have averaged just under 40 in test cricket. So, you know, certainly wasn't a bad player, made a double, a double hundred in South Africa. Um, you know, so a fantastic cricketer, um, but never quite cracked test cricket. If you look at him technically... I would say he's a much closer to what the old coaching manual was to most players. And yet he had huge problems with the ball coming back in, right? I, I think he would have, the way he batted, he might even have more problems now in, um, uh, with, in the DRS era than he did pre-DRS. But he had huge problems with the ball coming back in. Now, how can you have a perfect technique and have a problem with the ball coming back in? Those two things don't really correlate. And so there's a, I think there's a lot that is said about those sorts of things realistically, what you're looking for is a repeatable technique. So Alistair Cook didn't have a very good technique. He had an angle bat outside of stump, but he didn't actually go at many of those balls outside of stump in a way that, say, Rory Burns has. And so because of that, it's a repeatable technique, even if it has a flaw in it. And I think if you look at Vince's technique, it might be better as a package, but it's not repeatable because the problem here is that teams have worked out that he's going to continue to do this and there's no, no way he's ever going to stop. And it's a bit the same with, um, uh, with Crawley. Both of them are going to drive at balls that other players won't. And that is part of their strength and part of the reason that they have been pushed into the test team, despite the fact that neither of them ever cracked uh, first-class cricket beforehand. The problem with that is that when in test cricket, the balls are a little bit faster, a little bit more accurate and a little bit more skillful. And so what people basically do is they go, okay, well, Crawley's hit us for two or three falls down the ground. That's fine. What we're going to do now is we're just going to continue to, to hit that length so he has to keep going on the up. And eventually we're going to get a little bit, either he's going to play inside the line, or we're going to get a little bit of our, uh, away movement here and he's going to nick off. And, and, and I think that then you, you could say that he has a good technique to get on top of the ball and to drive and to force teams and certainly bowlers onto the back foot. But you also have to say that, is that a repeatable thing that he can do? So far in test cricket, no. So, so far in first class cricket, no. You would say the same with James Vince. So you can have a good technique and your elbow can be in the right position. Your head can be over the ball. You can even be playing late, all these things. But if you, what you're doing doesn't work in a repeated manner, then there's a problem, right? And so if you look at Kane Williamson, he plays his defensive shots quite often in the open face of the bat. If anyone else did that, they would probably get a lot more edges to slips that would carry than he does. It wouldn't be repeatable. It's repeatable for him because he has the ability to middle more of them to backward point to, you know, past third slip, past fourth slip even at times, you know, and that they go along the ground. That's not as, as pure a technique 
as as what James Vince or Zach Crawley have in many ways. But it's a much better te- a technique for test cricket. So there is a conflation between good and aesthetically pleasing. There's also a conflation between someone is doing everything right, but they're still being dismissed, and someone else is doing fewer things right, but doesn't get dismissed as much. And I, I think that's where we, we get a little bit confused. I mean, Steve Smith and Don Bradman are two perfect examples, and Viv Richards and Kevin Peterson, there's a few of them, not good techniques. And yet, they're pretty good players. Satchmo said, is there a way to speed up overrates or restart with 12 to 13 overs an hour in men's tests when the quicks are on? They don't want to speed them up. I mean, I get this question, I don't know what, every few weeks, right? And, and I understand why you all ask it, but they don't want to speed it up. I actually, I've come more to the thought process over the years that they'd probably rather just have the extra half an hour on the end of the day. And also the ICC specifically, I'm not sure why they would worry about it. They don't make any more money if there's more overs played in a day. They don't make any money from test match cricket bilaterally anyway. You know, other than the World Test Championship, I can't see any situation where they necessarily need to do that. So, um, yeah, we there are hundreds of ways to speed up the overrates. Um, we've seen many forms of cricket that have been able to do it. Test cricket doesn't want to do it, and so it's not doing it. Ian says, is there any way of finding out um, what wickets bowlers take in their career? I'm sure analysts and coaches, et cetera, know this, but for the layman, um, almost a third measure beyond averages and strike rate. I envisage it is allocating a number to each batter based on their batting position. When a bowler takes a wicket, they get a score from 1 to 11. Yeah, um, the tricky thing with that is, Ian, is you're instantly um, – taking spinners out, right? Because opening bowlers are going to get so many of the top four. Um, I I think, I'm trying to remember if it's possible to see it on StatsGuru if you go via the bowling metric. I know I can get it, but I can't remember if that's where I got it from. So I did a big piece on it um, for, um, uh, must be for my YouTube page. It's all about Mitchell Stark. I think if you Google Jared Kimber, Mitchell Stark, Shane Warne, you'll get it. It was one of the first good area videos that we sort of did where we put all this together. Um, sorry, just trying to hold in a sneeze or allow <laughs> allow that sneeze to come out, in fact. You do find that there are more speciality bowlers. No, I think when you look at this, you do find there are less speciality bowlers than you would think. So... Stuart McGill is the best um, bowler against the tail. You've got Steve Harmison was another fantastic bowler against the tail. I want to say Shoab Akhtar was another one. That's about it. There are some bowlers like Josh Hazelwood, Andrew Flintoff. Might have been Vernon Philander might be another one. Absolutely spectacular against the top order. Not particularly good against the tail. But most bowlers, if they're good, are good against the tail, against the middle, against the end. Um and then you probably get some, what I would say, more a specialist new ball bowlers who are much better with that new ball in their hands. So they're very good against the top order players and not as good against the others. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. In some ways, I'm not sure it says as much as you think it does. I think maybe the more interesting thing, I mean, you've got a runs above average metric that we can uh, that we can do. But then also, I think the other thing that you've got to um, look at is if you're taking a middle if you're taking middle order batters out regularly, look at Neil Wagner and Ben Stokes. I think you make a very sound argument that they are worth, their wickets can be sometimes worth more than someone who's taking wickets with a new ball because it's very easy to find bowlers who can take wickets with a new ball. And what Wagner and Stokes manage to do is take wickets with set batters with an older ball. 
So they would get less points than an opening bowler coming in and getting that. But I do understand your your general point of, of how that works. You know, other people have talked about, you know, general averages and everything. I, I think it's more important to think about it from – there was a time when Mitchell Stark got dropped by the Australian team, and when he got dropped, he um, they replaced him with – I want to say Chad Sayers. Maybe that's wrong. It might have been Jackson Bird. I can't remember. And my thought was, well, they talk about Mitchell Stark being – their reverse swing bowler um, and taking the tail, are they replacing him with someone who actually does those things? And I think now looking at the numbers, that's actually not exactly what Mitchell Stark does. Um, but certainly he had those skills available to him, whereas Jackson Bird and Chad Says probably do not. And so finding out what a bowler does well is important, but I don't think it's as simple as, as what you've done. I see James has put some uh, comments up there as well. Um, but the whole thing is, is really interesting. Uh, and then Will says, uh, do you fear for the longevity of international cricket? If the BCCI actually invested the billions to make back into Indian cricket, well, I fear for it, whether they do or whether they don't. Um, if they actually did this well, surely India would be far and away the best team and cricket could become like basketball in the international competition is dominated by one country and the major tournaments almost are almost a formality. Well, no. There's a couple of reasons here. One is that basketball isn't one team and they have lost. Um, also, as basketball has grown over the last 20 years, it's become more international. You could make a very good case now that the four best players in the NBA going into this next season, or certainly four of the five, depending on where you have Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, are overseas players. And yes, they're not USA players, but when they go back and they, and they build their sides, you know, Spain and France, um, you know, uh, a full-strength Serbia, um, all those sorts of teams, in some ways, they are going to be, in some ways, the NBA doesn't really help the American team be better just that there are more quality basketballs in in America. I, I hope that makes sense. So in some ways, having you know a, a good Australian team, a good Serbian team, a good Spanish team, a good French team, who've all grown up together, all as the best 10, 15, 20 best players in their country, who all know each other's games, is much better than the USA going, okay, uh, how are we going to pick this team? Um, well, the, the best players aren't available because they don't care about it as much, and they're only going to play one in every three tournaments. So you're already at a disadvantage when the USA team. So from a basketball perspective, there's already cracks within that system. And in some ways, the rest of, it's the opposite. What happened in basketball was basketball is probably more like what English cricket was before World War II, perhaps. Maybe even before World War I, where they were the cricket nation, right? You know, they were... Uh, England, sorry, England were the cricket nation at that stage. They invented the sport, they perfected it, they were professionals, everyone else was uh, was hanging around. So um, I certainly, I think from that perspective, um, it's a very different situation. If India actually invested the billions back into Indian cricket, they won't, is my guess, because they never have, um, not even on a small level. I do think they could be the dominant team. I think they can be the dominant team, though, anyway. I think in some ways the market has changed. Um, but if they are investing that money back into international cricket, does that not also mean that international cricket certainly would still have a cachet? They wouldn't be doing that unless international cricket ha was there. So I think there's, I think there's other parts to it. Also think that at a certain point, 
I'm trying to think where you would have to go. Yeah, I, I find it very hard to believe. I, sp I suppose it's possible in, I'm trying to think, what sort of a time frame. The IPL keeps getting bigger. It ends up being half the, half the um, calendar year. Um, we have 25 teams, although I don't think we get that many in that period of time, maybe 15, 20 teams. Um, in that period of time, um, it completely swallows everything up. Still think you're going to have flare-ups, though, Will, because I still think you're going to have – it's not the same as basketball in that all these other countries have come to basketball far later than the USA and are trying to catch up. And so you can have good international players, but they're spread around a little bit more in, in different countries. Whereas in cricket, there's no reason why South Africa, the West Indies, England, Australia – Pakistan, Sri Lanka, wh wherever that may be, couldn't have just a run of really good players or really interesting players or, or hard-to-beat players in one period that would upset that because they're not starting – they're starting with really good structures themselves, which is not the case with basketball. Basketball took a long time to grow up in, in a lot of these other countries, whereas it had a huge head start in America. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it quite equates, but it is possible. But if that's the case, uh, on a very basic level, we still have international uh, cricket. Um, and it does mean that India is still taking it seriously. Um, I still watch the World, uh, you know, the World Cup of basketball, uh, even though I know that when America has a full-strength team, they should win. Um, it's great basketball. It's different to the NBA. I just finished watching Eurobasket. Not quite the same, but, um, you know, so, so I don't think that quite matters as much because you're forgetting all the other individual challenges you could for instance where well, you could have said between 1999 and 2007 the same thing about australia did we all stop watching cricket i don't think we did uh, it's a question about leicestershire being really bad at the moment look you know dan weston's talked about this a lot i can't remember if he talked about it on my podcast or someone else's or maybe it was just to me personally but you know they have leicestershire are being really interesting in going after younger players and trying to do a different kind of model I don't think you can judge their results based on on wins and losses alone at the moment because it's a little bit like a tanking team in American sports, right? It's not quite the same because they're not going to get good draft picks or anything like that. But if you're picking, if you if you're taking more chances um, to build something bigger, the chance you should lose more on the way there. That said, it's now been a few years in. Um, it's really interesting, and and also, I think. And this is going to be a big thing in franchise cricket that team that I remember, I think it was on Mark and Estelle's podcast, the new Sri Lanka on 99.94. They were talking about a rebuilding team. We don't, I think it was them. It might've been Michelle and Santoki. We don't really talk about rebuilding in cricket, but realistic because of the way the international cricket works, right? You're always trying to put your best 11 out, put your best 11 out, put your best 11 out. But in, in, in franchise um, systems and in first class systems, you kind of have to. And I wonder if that sort of thinking will become more what fans um, understand going ahead when it comes to those sorts of things. And look, Leicester could be doing it all wrong, right? But where they were before, I wonder if if their you know their best end game was what occasionally making it to finals day, um, occasionally getting uh, into Division One. Um, and having a lucky run in, in, in that. And they're trying to build something better than that, perhaps. 
to do that, you probably have to take more chances and it could go up and down. And Aditya says, was the 2007 uh, Australian World Cup team the closest to perfect white ball team? They had two genuine all-rounders in the top six in Watson and Simons. Well, I don't think Simons is a genuine all-rounder. <laughs> um, I mean, he's not a frontline bowler at any stage. I think the fact they had both of them in the top six is really interesting, though. Um, what, 2007? Where's Waddo's bowling in 2007? Yeah, he hadn't, he hadn't had all of his um, soft tissue issue injuries at that point, had he? Oh, no, maybe he had. I think he was still bowling pretty quick, though, wasn't he? Um, certainly, you know, not like in the 70s, like he would end up bowling. Wiki keeper batting in the top six. Yeah, that's pretty perfect. Uh, a proper batter batting at number seven in Hussein Simons. Yep, can't argue with that. A genuine quick in Tate. Uh, left arm in Bracken. Also a change-up bowler in Bracken. Um, they had seven bowling options if we consider Clark's left arm spin. Yeah, I think if it's a perfect team, I think one of Watto, Simons, and Clark has to be a frontline bowler, and then the other two have to be um, variation bowlers. I'm not sure of those three. Uh, they are the uh, the other only other thing I would say is you've say they got batting to seven, but you mentioned Bracken, you mentioned Tate, they had McGrath in that team. You would want you would want your your Bracken type player to probably be uh, and who was the spin, or you would want Brad Hogg um, to be a better batter at that stage. If you get early career Brad Hogg when he broke into the Western Australian team as a batter, um, I think that's a fantastic. Uh, you know that's that's a much better lineup. I think by two thousand and seven. Um, he wasn't. He was no longer that player. None of those other guys, none of those other three bowlers can bat at all. So if you're looking, if you're looking for the closest to the perfect white ball team, yes, it does have a wrist spinner. I'm trying to think. I mean, the 2000, 1999 South African team. Rob, although it has Elworthy in it, doesn't it? Although he he played a very important role because of Alan Donald in that team. I would have thought the 2009, sorry, the 1999 South African team was probably closer to being perfect. And then you've got 2019 England. Where do they fit into that? I think, you, again, though, you've got late career Plunkett batting down the order, don't you? Um, and late career Adel Rashid. If you had those guys earlier, maybe, because that, that's a phenomenal long batting lineup with a lot of bowling in it as well. Um, and again, you know, you've got a lot of these other things. Neither of Left arm wrist spinner is really interesting um, in all that. Um, look, yeah, I think I think those three, it's weird to think back that the South African one didn't win, of course. Um, and by 2003, it busted up completely. Um, but having Lance Klusner, Sean Pollock, you know, down the order in that particular team, uh, I'm trying to remember if they batted to nine in some games. Yeah, so some fantastic. Uh, they didn't have the wicket keeper up the order, though, did they? Uh, did you? No, it's a really good question. I, I mean, I have to go back and break it up. I'd have to have a look, trying to think if West Indies ever had a great all-rounder. I don't think they did because Viv Richards bowled a lot of overs in those teams. So I don't think, and Bernard Julian's numbers probably don't uh, don't quite stack up as much. And Imran Khan's batting is interesting from a 92 Pakistan perspective. A full-strength Pakistan team in that era, though, would be would be an interesting one as well, I would have thought. But yeah, there's um there there's certainly uh, I you know I think the Australian 2007 team is pretty good. Wondering if yeah, it's a shame Ian Harvey's gone by. Maybe they don't see him as good enough bowler to be that fourth bowler. Um, 
trying to think of where he could have fit into 2007, but he's probably passed his best by then anyway. Uh, great question though. Thank you to everyone for asking the questions. Also, thank you to Bodyline T-shirts. They sent me through a new one. Here's the, uh, this is the, well, this is actually Bodyline Field, I just realized. Uh, double Bodyline. Um, they sent me through a bunch of good ones. You see, I've done a video on the Kookaburra Bulls that will come out next week. It's really one of the most interesting stories I've got, I've done in ages, so check it out. Very good Viv Richards t-shirt on, though, I think, in that one, which is almost as important. Um, uh, but let's get to some of the people from the chat. All right. Jacob, you there? Hello. How you doing, mate? What's your question? So my question is about strike rates and test crickets. And my question is, is there a pattern for how quickly the most successful batters in test cricket score? So look, do the best batters tend to score quickly, slowly, or somewhere in the middle? Or is there not really a pattern for how quickly like the most successful batters score? So the, the current uh, strike rate um, pattern is between 40 and 60, right? So you don't have many players under 40 and you have a few above 60. Um, but it, it's basically most players score uh, around that. So traditionally, you would probably want a player to score around 45 to 50. Um, because that means that uh, you're you're probably um, uh, turning the strike over. What you don't want to do in Test cricket really is less to do with strike rate and more to do with turning the strike rate, turning the strike over. So, so you do get uh, Verinder Sehwag, Victor Trumper, um, Andrew Simons, uh, Adam Gilchrist, Quentin de Kock type level uh, capital dev, very fast scorers, right? Very few of those, though, have also very high averages because it is hard to attack the red ball consistently in test cricket and um, come away on top. So that's why Adam Gilchrist and Vrinda Sewag made such a, um, a big hole in cricket, right? Because they did something that hadn't been done before. You can go back to Viv Richards. There's a, there's a reason that Viv, uh, Victor Trumper is still talked about. Victor Trumper didn't even average 40 in test cricket. But he scored at such a quick rate that people still were talking about him generations later, despite the fact that many players had done it before. So the majority of the players, though, do sit between 40 and 60. So there's no real pattern within that. The pattern is more to do with singles. The best players ever generally are brilliant at getting off strike. So outside of Verinder Sewag, I think who else there aren't that many so I did I did a I did a study on when I was looking at James Vince I think James Vince had the second highest boundary percentage of any player in test cricket um with whatever it was maybe over 500 or a thousand runs um who wasn't an opener um and and that was the problem he was having he wasn't getting off strike if you look at Joe Root Steve Smith Kane Williamson Virat Kohli they're all brilliant at getting off strike so with Sachin Tendulkar, you know. Um, so you either need, uh, there are uh, different kinds of players. You do have sort of the, um, uh, what, would you, what would you call it? Like the uh, Raul Dravid, uh, Chitesvai Pajara, uh, Jeffrey Boycott, Sandal Gavaskar type players who don't get off strike, but that's just because they have a hugely above average um, defensive um, ability, right? More often than not, if you look at the best players ever, if you look at Bradman, go back and look at his highlights. Watch what he does after he plays each shot. He's literally looking to get off strike all the time. And, and yes, he's trying to hit you for fours, um, and he certainly tried to pierce the gaps. But more often than not, what he's trying to do is get off strike. To be able to do that realistically, you don't need a high strike rate. 
to be successful because if you can do that, that means the bowler can't line you up for ball after ball and work on a plan against you. And so that is a much stronger pattern than you, te than you tend to see for strike rates. So we can have great players who have a strike rate of 40 and great players who have a strike rate of 60. Um, but there's no real pattern with that. I would say that you probably get the players that teams worry about a bit more are the ones who strike at over 50 just because they have the ability to put the pressure back on. So Alistair Cook can put pressure on you, but he doesn't put pressure on you until he's been batting for two sessions, right? Whereas uh, Steve Smith or Virat Kohli, if they're batted for two sessions, the pressure's already on you, right? They score Just because they're scoring at, you know, 55, 60 um, type level scoring, whereas Alistair Cook, especially over the first couple of sessions, is probably scoring around more 30 to 40 before he amps it up when he gets in. So there's no real pattern with it. It's just... I always say that with 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 batting, it's kind of uh, it's like a risk analysis, right? So Kevin Peterson took a lot more risks, but when you listen to him, he would tell you why he had to take those risks. He would say that you know I was facing this bowler, this bowler, I thought I had a good matchup, or the wind was in his favour, or the ball was doing something, so I'm going to take a risk against him, and that's why I'm going to play more attacking. Whereas what Joe Root would probably do is go, I'm just going to make sure I'm at the other end, right? And so there are probably more guys like Joe Root. Than there are like Kevin Peterson, just because it's hard to regularly take risks against the best bowlers in the world and come off successfully. So, so yeah, to answer your question, there's no real pattern that I've ever seen in um in first class cricket, sorry, in, in test cricket when it comes to strike rates showing you you can be successful. So you, you can be successful from a strike rate of a, anything under 40 is tough, right? And anything over 60, it's hard to be consistent. So between 40 and 60, there isn't as much, if you think about it, runs per over, there isn't that much of a difference. So, so we think about it a little bit differently. But if you're bowling to someone and you know that they're going to be scoring around two, two and a half runs and over, and someone else is going to be scoring at around three, three and a half runs and over, there is a little bit more pressure on you as a bowler, I think, at that stage. But the real pressure does come in over 60. That's when you really start to see the the psychological impact of, of, of a fast strike rate, which is why more often than not, if you look at test cricket, there aren't that many players who really have that ability to do that. And so it's talked about a lot, but it doesn't translate a lot. Like, so my favorite one was when England was struggling and they wanted an attacking player to open the batting with Alistair Cook and they sent Alex Hales in. Alistair Cook's career strike rate's about 47. So he actually does, I think, I think that's right. So he actually does get off strike pretty well. Um, and that means anytime you bowled straight to him, he would get off strike. And if you bowled short, he had a chance of hitting a boundary. Um, Alex Hales's strike rate when he went into the test team was around 45, I think. So despite the fact he was sent into attack, and the reason was, is that Alistair Cook's strike rate isn't 47 when he starts, right? It's when he's been in for hours and hours, he can get faster and faster and faster, and he can get a single almost anytime he wants once he's been in for a while. Alex Hales never got in, right? So unless Alex Hales was going to be a almost a, what, a Rohit Sharma or a Verinder Sehwag or maybe a Matthew Hayden level who can score very quickly from ball one. It was never going to translate the way that they thought. And so it, it does show you that even the slower batters, usually once they're in, have the ability to turn strike over. And that's the more important thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you, Jared. No worries. Thanks for the question, mate. Great question. Thank you. Bye. There's a bunch in the chat for some reason today. I did see a couple of other people put their hand up, though, so always good to talk to you. Rowan says, how exciting was it to see green tea off in white ball cricket? 
surely it's a no-brainer for Australia to have him in the World Cup squad given his current form. Yeah, the, the, my first thought when he made runs was, I think, does that mean he has to open? I'd have to go back and have a look. I mean, he has a shit domestic T20 record. It's, it's actually comically bad. And it does remind me a little bit of Ben Stokes where there's almost, it's almost like he doesn't quite, he never quite understood how, it's not that the talent isn't there because obviously he can bowl fast and he's tall and all these sorts of things. But it's almost like he didn't know how to put it all together into a role. And that's a really important thing. And then he makes runs opening the batting. And my first thought is, well, is he, how's that going to work? And can he do it anywhere else? Um, but yeah, look, I mean, he's an exciting player, so you want to see him do things. So I think from that perspective, it's really good. Rogers says, is Ollie Robinson overrated? Despite all the talk about becoming a gym bunny, I'm still concerned about his drop in pace in second and third spells. He's not overrated, Roger. He's fantastic. He's so skillful. So talented. Um, but when you but but the second part of your question isn't that it's no one that's what everyone is rating correctly. Right? No one's overrating that part. The second part of that though is if he can't maintain his speed and look the whole speed thing is alex Tudor has this great theory that he talks about on talks but a lot that he actually thinks the speed gun is one of the worst things that's happened to bowlers because what used to happen is is you'd be bowling and no one could tell what speed you were bowling at and you could slow down on purpose because you think do you know what i just need to slow down here because actually what i want to do is i want to dry this batter up or i want to um uh i want to work on accuracy for a minute um, or the pitch is doing more when I slow down than when I bowl quick. That's really hard for bowlers to do now because the minute it happens, if it's not successful, everyone says straight away, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're not putting in. Joffre Archer did it at Headingley, and I still heard people say negative things about it, right? Oh, he can't bowl 90 miles an hour all the time. Or he thought bowling 85 miles an hour in that next test would work for him, and he took a six for. It's a really interesting theory. So that I almost want to put all that out there before I say the next part, which is Ollie Robinson is not fit enough. I don't know. I worry about it more overseas than I do at home, and that's England's biggest problem because there are times when you're bowling overseas where you just need to be able to bowl very long spells, places like Australia, places like India, uh, places like the West Indies, and I really worry, and Sri Lanka is probably um, another one, where the innings go quite long at times. I do worry if he has that ability um, to be able to do that. And secondly... I don't think he's dropping his pace down because he thinks it's suiting him. I do think it's a fitness issue with him specifically. So, um, no, I am, I'm certainly worried about that, um, from him, but no, I don't think he's overrated because what people, people are more than aware that he's not as fit as he should be, but everyone's saying, look at this talent. Um, and, and if you want to look at that, I mean, Vernon Philander was probably very rarely incredibly fit but Vernon Philander got himself to a point where he can bowl consistently um, and be a threat all the time if Ollie Robinson can do that I think fitness is less of a concern hey Drew can I hear this time yeah oh there you are beautiful mate talk to me uh, what do you think associate nations should do to improve interest in cricket I mean the basic thing is that you need to be more successful right it's not it's not an easy answer I think the other thing is is probably working out how sports get big in 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 your country um you know in america I mean, we know let's look at america right we know that in america that what you really need is for uh it to be part of the high school slash college system right if it's not part of the high school slash college system 
I don't know how cricket is ever going to be a major part of of, of American culture. Um, if you if you look at, I don't know, if you're trying to make a sport big in Australia, be looking at more at club systems, right? That clubs and leagues are what seem to work um, in Australia. And so different countries have different ways of sport growing. And I think that you'd probably, what you really want to do is probably do some sort of a deep dive into how other sports have got popularity in the last 10 or 15 years. Is there something that you can be taken from that? The problem is, though, we're talking about amateur organizations. They don't have a lot of money. They can't do a lot of testing or anything like this. Um, and so realistically, playing better cricket is the, 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 the safest way of doing that. But there's kind of two ways of growing a sport, if, if you think about it. One is to have the sport in it. I suppose the NFL is maybe the best case scenario of this. If you look at the NFL around the world, right? You know, American football. So you basically want a sport that is almost completely uh, part, uh, uh, participation free. You know, most countries, there are heaps of countries in the world that, are, you know, really watch a lot of NFL where there's almost no NFL played, right? And then the other way of doing it is to build it up maybe the way that um, soccer built up in America, which was literally by building itself up as a participation sport. Didn't, didn't work when they originally tried, you know, having Palais and all that sort of stuff. They had some success, but it certainly didn't gain enough traction. Why is football bigger now? Because so many people in America have played football. They understand football now. Um, so if you look at those two specific uh, ways of doing things, um, you might have to work out, again, which one will work better for your particular country and how, the, how this goes. But, you know, you're talking about organizations with amateurs who run them and not much money and it's tough and there's a lot of people in associate cricket doing absolutely great things but it's still not getting them anywhere so um it's not an easy one but thanks for your question mate he can't see you there yeah hi hey mate what's your question so you used to do a podcast about the articles you've written so you've not done it for a while if i'm not wrong but if you could what would you do again like what would you review and look back on so, so what what do you mean? Do you mean I've done some red inkers on old articles I've yeah, written? Yeah, like uh, the Sri one yeah. and uh, the World Cup one, stuff like that. Yeah, so I think that was when I had Sebastian as my co-host. So it's a lot easier to do when you have a co-host. So Sebastian's got too busy with his work. I mean, you know, uh, he's he's the OG when it comes to cricket podcasts. Um, probably one of the most successful cricket podcasts there's ever been, um, considering where he started and, and where he ended. Um, and he's obviously a great mate of mine and... Um, I would send him. I would send him a. a I would send him an article. And to be honest, quite often he would pick the articles because it would be something that he would want to talk about. Um, and it just got to a point where he wouldn't do it. So we did the. I don't know if you heard, but the last double century series before the current one. Uh, and if 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 anyone's listening out there and hasn't listened to double century, double century started again. We're hoping to make it weekly from here on in. So some great. The first. The first season back is really good. But the season we did just before this was the Aubrey Faulkner article uh, where we ba we basically did it. So I didn't really talk about the article. I just read it out uh, with, with a couple of changes and some modifications and um, and everything else. Um, but, yeah, I think I think it's possible. It's so, It really is something that I think I need a co-host for. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, I've done some Red Inkers which have been – uh, either articles I've written for Substack or um, videos uh, where I've done them on my own. So I reckon I've done about seven or eight podcasts on my own. Um, 
I wonder if that might be harder to do with with a, with a big feature like something like Shri Santh or um, the Michael Clark piece or or any of those. But it's certainly something that I want to try again. But I have to work out how to be able to do them on my own. Um, but I do have a co-host coming on shortly, so it is possible that we we might do some stuff like that. So um, uh, here you go. Here's an exclusive. Um, uh, Bharat Sundarayan is joining the podcast one day a week. So with him coming on, that might one thing that we really both want to do is maybe explore the stuff that we've written a bit more. So we'll still be talking about modern things and and a lot of it will be our current day writing. But I think what we will do is obviously go back to some of the other pieces or or themes maybe that we've done of stuff. So we might do it. But yeah, as far as Red Inca goes, it was just that Sabash was too busy. He um he got a big job, he got a he got a kid. Um you know all all the things that don't, and his and his you know his wife got a big job as well so um suddenly they were just more busy as a family and I couldn't I yank him off to do podcasts but I'm still hoping you know one day he becomes a teacher or something and has more spare time and can come back on and I I, I you know love to get him to do his own podcast again on the ninety nine point nine four network um or he could come on maybe one day a week and, and do some stuff uh, with us as well but yeah it's just a it's it's kind of you know it's just trying to work out how these things work. Um, and I worked out a really way of doing it was a good way of doing it with Sebastian. Then I didn't have Sebastian anymore. So, um, I haven't really gone back to them. Uh, but if you, what, what articles would you want me to, um, potentially do? Yeah, actually that was what I wanted to ask. Did you have any, uh, in your mind that was, that you were preparing for or that you want, wanted to do? I think, I think we, I really wanted to do something on the Neil Wagner video. I've never really, weirdly enough, like it's probably the most successful thing I've ever done outside of Crick Info um, or outside of the movie and books and things like that. And I haven't really talked about it much about how it came uh, together and, and, and how we did it, but also how interesting it is, you know, watching Neil Wagner liking the tweets about it and stuff like that. Um, uh, it was really, it was, the whole thing was just really, really interesting. So that's definitely one. The other one, I don't think you might remember, I don't think I've done the Sean Tate one. From what I know, no. No. So we did Asif Kareem with Asif Kareem because he was uh, kind enough to come on. So I, I didn't need Sabash for that one. The Sean Tate one is definitely one. The wicket-keeping one, point fielders with gloves on. I don't know if we did that one. That you had a, a cricket seed to start uh, thing no? on wicket-keepers ones. Yes. Yes. So I think that's where that article came from, actually. Or maybe it was the other way around. But uh, that article, I'd, I'd been working on that for years before that one came out. Um, I'm trying to think of what else is on Cricket uh, Cricket Monthly or that I've written for someone else. Oh, the Archie one is probably the big one. Um, the question there is whether I get Archie on. Again, Archie sort of moved on from from that in his life, but, you know, um, uh, that was that was huge. Um, so, um, yeah, there's a few. There's a few. There's also just a few pieces I've written over the last little while. Um, trying to, What I'm trying to do as much at the moment and obviously with me and Bharat, this will change again slightly. But what I've been trying to do a little bit at the moment is have the ability to write something really good, whether it's a script or an article for, on Substack, and then make it into a discussion. And, and that's the bit I was sort of missing without the co-host. So hopefully with Bharat, we can, we can do that. There might be more modern ones, but also me and Bharat maybe can occasionally go back um, in time. But yeah, the, the idea is that the podcast will from very soon, I don't know when we're going to start, but from very soon, we're going to move it to three days a week. So the days will change, um, just just to let everyone know here. Um, but but yeah, it's it's really exciting. Uh, me and Barra, uh, we're, we're working on a big other project at, at the moment. Um, uh, and, and it was, he's, I think he's the most logical person for me. He's a friend. He's like me, he's a feature writer who's 
kind of been made to write non-features um, to make a career. Um, we're both world cricket guys, if that makes sense, rather than single um, nation guys who, who like world cricket. Um, and we're both, uh, for, you know, have moved away from home for our careers and all that sort of stuff. So um, other than the fact that he probably prattle on about wrestling a lot, um, I think it's, you know, although I'll probably prattle on about basketball a lot, so maybe it works out. But, but yeah, so I think, you know, there's, I, I should say the, the idea is still, and this is, you know, I, for, for fans of this podcast, the idea really is still to get this podcast to four or five days a week, if at all possible, um, as long as it works with my schedule. And, and that's the idea of 99.94. Um, you know, that was one of the reasons that I started it was, you know, to have the ability to make this into a more of a job rather than, you know, when it was Red Inca, originally it was more like for the Patreon um, support. Um, but the idea was to take that Patreon support and make it into a job. So, you know, anyone who's ever supported us on Patreon, 99.94, a piece of that goes to towards you. But the idea was always, how do I get Red Inca to five days a week without killing producer Nick, without it affecting my life? And we're getting closer and closer towards that. So the one other thing I would say is, I think when 99.94's production system upgrades a little bit, what we will do is I'll probably have those three days a week and then I'll have the ability to do single podcasts on my own on, on a topic, a bit like what I did with the Ben Stokes one uh, where I just talked on my own about something I was interested about, trying to work all those sorts of things out. Um, but, yeah, th um, thanks for your support, mate. Thanks for your question. Yeah, thanks. I'm just seeing if there's anything else in the chat that I need to look at. Siddharth says, Watson on the great cricketer said, Josh Hazelwood gets more energy behind the ball than Cummins, but Cummins is much faster. Energy behind the ball, is that more, he's talking more about the heavy ball, the way it hits your bats, perhaps also the way that the speed comes off the pitch with Hazelwood. Um, usually it's either backspin or stronger bowlers um, that we usually hear those things about. Rohan asks, what's the most frustrating rule in cricket for me? Personally, it's umpire's call, not being out in LBW. No, I don't mind that one at all. Uh, most frustrating rule. Um, so it's talking more playing conditions, I suppose, there. Oh, it's it's the fact that we still have two white balls um, in one-day cricket rather than actually fixing the white ball. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Check out my video in a couple of days. Absolutely stupid. Vidat says, cricket in India, the grassroots level is still badly managed. I think cricket in most places, <laughs> the grassroots level is badly managed. But yes, definitely in India. Only upper middle class with enough resources can grab opportunities. The sixth turn from the IPR goes straight to middle-aged businessmen and politicians. Yeah, I think, I mean... There's not much that I would disagree with there. I, I don't understand where all the money from Indian cricket goes because it's not going into uh, facilities to find uh, or to, to, to help women or men get better at cricket, right, which is what it should be. Um, obviously, the whole academy system that you had over there, the private academies, um, and some of my friends run some of them, but, it, you know, you get, you're, you're limiting from the amount of people that should be playing cricket. Um, and so what you're really allowing for is hopefully that the IPL gets so big that their scouting networks get to a point where they look beyond academies, but the academy players are always going to look more polished, or um, that you'll get to a point where you get more freaks from outside the system, you know, players who don't play cricket the normal way. Um, and then if you if you put a bunch of, you know, three or four, you know, so Jasper Brummer's bowling action is a perfect example of that, you know. Um, um, I'm trying to think of something. Lassif Malinga uh, is another one. Um, those sorts of people that sort of come completely from outside the system. 
we get more of them in bowlers than we do in batters in cricket. You know, Andre Russell, I suppose, is slightly another one, although I'm not sure he's completely from outside the system. But those sorts of things. If you can have seven or eight, even if you just took from the best middle-class Indian people who can afford the money, and so you have really well-schooled cricketers, and those are your best six, seven, eight players, and then you have three physical freaks, mental freaks, um, you know, outliers, people with techniques that don't make any sense, um, people who think about the game completely differently because they didn't come up through the normal system, that's still going to have a lot of success for you as a team. Cheers for Barrett. So that's quite cool. Um, yeah, I think that's every, uh, pretty much everything in in the chat. So thanks to everyone for putting their questions up. Um, just something else we're going to do uh, just on the 99.94. Obviously, there's so many people that are getting uh, in touch with us at the moment on all the different mediums. And we're still quite a small company. Uh, our poor CEO, Vasu, is having to deal with a lot of the social media stuff, for instance. So just a huge thanks to everyone who has. Um, so we got... I don't know how to pronounce this one. Jewel Hughes, I think that's right, who has done some asked some really good questions of on the YouTube channel. Um, one of the things he's talking about was how far Romario Shepard's death bowling has regressed. It's interesting. I never thought Romario Shepard was a good death bowler. I did some commentary a couple of times on him, and I, and and most of those times I've thought to myself, it looks shaky. I I was a bit shocked that. West Indies in, in, invested so much in him there. Um, uh, Jewel, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's two E's, which is really getting to me, but um, I think it's Jewel. Um, oh, but great question. There's some really good questions there for uh, there. Um, so thank you there. There was a really good episode that the West Indies on 99.94 guys did uh, about uh, who is Brian Lara anyway, when he's got this big coaching job out of nowhere. If you haven't heard it, you can find it obviously on their podcast or you can go to YouTube. Uh, it's really good because there's some really great uh, comments about that, um, about coaching, um, and also about uh, Michelle's incredible rants about <laughs> Bryce Lara, which is where the title of that episode comes from. Um, but I think it's I think it's it's a really good one um, to go and listen to if you haven't seen it. But some really um, good comments um, on that from Ruben and uh, What a Player uh, on Twitter as well. Don't know why I put an accent on that. It just sounds like an Australian thing to say, but it's probably not. It's, Maybe that's a – is that a water play? Is that a Ravi Shastri one as well? Wacker Yunus? I feel like someone else is. Uh, the Sri Lanka on 99.94 podcast, Cricket de Tashan has said uh, they should open with a papari tune. That's a good idea. We might need a little bit more money on 99.94 uh, to be able to get to our, our songs and everything, but we are working towards all that sort of stuff. Uh, Karan says uh, on the South African podcast, I'm not South African, but I have a feeling I'll be watching and listening to every single one of these. If you haven't listened to it, uh, you know, uh, Neil Manthorpe and, and Lungami Zama. It's just, it, it really is a great podcast. I think that South Africa is a really interesting one on that, on the sort of the future of cricket as well, because obviously we've got this IPL league that's not the IPL there. Uh, you've got people leaving to go to England, people leaving to go to the IPL. Uh, terrible cricket uh, uh, administration structure there really is the front line for a lot of different issues within cricket. Um, so it's a brilliant podcast. Those two uh, have been great so far. Uh, just trying to see if there's anything else on here. Um, Atif Nawaz, uh, my friend, says uh, that you should go and listen to the India on 99.94 podcast. Uh, really enjoying it. Uh, you know, we threw Sarah completely into the deep end. Uh, luckily, we had um, smooth vocal stylings of Nikesh beside her. Um, but it's really become one of my favorite podcasts now. Um, it, it does remind you just how much Indian cricket news there is. 
content. Do you know what I mean? It's just a complete uh, flourish. So trying to listen to those, those guys um, catching up to that is uh, is really good fun. Re- there was a really good podcast on England on 99.94 the other day that Tom Pearson um, got, uh, has commented about. Uh, talking, It was one talking about Alex Hales, Nat Siva, and Amy Jones. Um, and Richard Dixon says that... Um, uh, that uh, he's a big fan of that one as well. So really good, you know, if you leave reviews, um, obviously, uh, or, or, you know, get in touch with any of these podcasts, the, the podcasters themselves will read them out. So if you're enjoying any of these shows, and if you haven't listened to them, even if it's not your country, some of these episodes are just really, you know, uh, going to be quite interesting to you. So if you just follow the the Twitter or the Instagram account, you'll probably get a bit of an idea of which episode you will. The Like the Brian Lara one, if you're a 90s kid, um, you're probably going to be interested in, in about how Brian Lara suddenly becomes a coach out of almost seemingly nowhere um, of an IPL franchise, which I must admit has bothered Michelle on that podcast, but I think you'll find that it's bothered quite a few people. So some really, really good podcasts out there. Uh, thanks to everyone who's left a uh, review on mine. I don't think we've had any new ones since we did uh, last week, um, but we've had quite a few of uh, over the last few months. So uh, thank you to everyone there. And um, uh, yeah, we'll be back again soon. Thanks to Bodyline T-shirts uh, for hooking me up. This, uh, you know, you be seeing almost a different T-shirt every week now. You know, you get a bit excited when you get a few. Um, I now realize I, ha- I own three Curtly Ambrose T-shirts which is very on brand for me as he was the guy I used to mimic in the backyard. I've also got a couple of Dennis Lilly ones. So some, some interesting t-shirts and some fun t-shirts, a bodyline um, t-shirt uh, that you can get, but just thanks to everyone for supporting us. Uh, and uh, you know, if you continue to do so, we'll be able to build more and more of these podcasts. As I said, we're looking to take red ink up to three days a week. Um, and you know, in, in the future, uh, we're looking towards even four or five days a week. So thanks for your support and I'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapiya producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs> <laughs>